0: That's BlueNile.com A Living History Production
2: I'm Peter Hart And I'm Gary Bain And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History
0: History
2: Podcast
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast I'm Peter Hart and I'm accompanied by my good friend, colleague and chum Warren no, 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 Oh, no, he's
2: in your bedroom, isn't he?
1: <laughs> he's in my study. Uh, oh, no. yes, study,
2: <laughs> wink, wink. Uh,
1: Gary Bain, the irrepressible, the uh, immovable. <laughs> um, what are we doing today, Gary?
2: Well, today we're continuing, and uh, uh, I suppose this is because your book's doing rather badly at rather badly <laughs> the moment. We're continuing the story of the 16th DLI. And this is a rather controversial one today, Pete, because it's about something... That's uh, entitled The Salerno Mutiny.
1: Oh! So, spoiler
2: there, straight away.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah it's a mutiny. Is, is it, well, I think it's more to do with uh, being a lefty, and you're a liberal. You know, it's... Uh, I think origins lie in the insensitivity and duplicity of elements in British High Command.
2: That's easy for you to say. Yeah, so what was it? Well, while at rest, the 16th DLI become embroiled indirectly, and as we've sort of alluded to, into what is sometimes portrayed as a rather shameful episode in British military history.
1: Yeah, some 1,500 previously wounded soldiers of the 50th and 51st Divs had been put on uh, transports from their camp in Tripoli, and they thought they were going to join their parent units, lovely mummy and daddy units in Sicily, and and they they thought they were going back to Britain to prepare for uh, the invasion of Normandy, D-Day uh and uh, that's what we'll be talking about this mutiny and we also have to introduce someone don't we and that's Ronald Elliot now i interviewed ronald elliot uh and uh, I interviewed him in 1988. You weren't born there, Gary. I don't think. And he was just 65 years old. Now, how old am I now, Gary?
2: Well, you're 68, I think, Pete. Yeah. So, uh, although I believe your heart is much older. Yeah, I just had my checkup.
1: <laughs> 75-year-old heart, 20% chance of dying in the next 10 years. <laughs>
2: So you interviewed him, what, what, what sort of length of time did you spend? About winning?
1: seven hours, 14 reels we used to call it, although that was when it was worry reels, it was di- already digital by then. He made a big impression on me, he was lovely, kind, gentle chap, uh, not a natural soldier, but what is a natural soldier, Gary, you've, you've served in the military, there's, there's not one type, it's every sort. You get useless articles. And there's
2: nothing natural about me. <laughs>
1: there isn't. You get drunks. You get stern chaps who are really good at everything. And they get people like you, yeah. Um, is there, I, his interview was a, a delight and, and he, he thought about uh, what had happened to him so he could talk intelligently and think about what was going on and I used to see him you know I used to do talks at the Durham Light Infantry Museum when it was there. it's gone now uh, and I used to see him for years afterwards. I believe he is now sadly uh, no longer uh, if he isn't I right <laughs> that would be a bit of a drop clang out right.
2: Now he's at the at the heart of of this uh, this mutiny. Well, this he? lovely, quiet, gentle. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what this is a bit of a departure for us because it's largely just going to be his story, yeah. isn't it, that we follow? So we're going to take it in turns well, uh, to, I to quote him.
1: I don't think you can understand the mutiny as we see it unless you just pick on one bloke and see how hey how they were caught up in it. It's not so. It's not a mutiny, nasty. You know, let's kill every all the officers and and burn the ship. That, but it's not that sort of mutiny, is it? So a little bit about
2: him, Ronald Elliot, he was the son of a coal miner, uh, born on the 19th of February, 1923 in South Shields. So that meant he was how old Pete in
1: 1939? Uh, Maths of Pete and Gary. Oh, that's quite easy. sixteen.
2: Yeah, and one uh, way or another, his date of birth meant that he was destined to take, as with a lot of people, he was destined to take part in the Second World War. But he'd long felt the dark shadows of the threat posed by fascism. He
1: had. He had. Um, uh, And, uh, I mean, well, uh, yeah, you're going to do the first quote, aren't you? So we're taking it in turns. We're going to
2: take it in turns. And this is Ronald Elliott. I think there was a greater awareness among some people than others. My father was very political, a socialist, so I had all this background of being brought up as a socialist. We saw the Spanish Civil War as a preliminary battle against fascism and communism, a conflict in embryo between fascism and the forces of democracy. My feeling would be that most of the ordinary general public weren't aware of the totality of fascism that came out during and after the war, What people were reacting to was just the territorial aggression of Hitler and Mussolini, that Hitler was wrapping up one country after another in Europe, and that if he wasn't stopped, it would be our turn next.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, Ronald, how do you think Eliot felt about about the war?
2: Well, he wasn't keen, but when it came to the crunch, he was ready to do his bit. And when war was declared on September 1939, he was there.
1: He thought that, 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 that the Munich crisis and, and what he considered to be Chamberlain's abject surrender had been a bit of national disgrace and, and uh, he's got to stand up and be counted, hasn't he? And this is what he said about the, the 3rd of September. Um, It was a Sunday, a beautiful sunny day, and the announcement was made on the radio. People thought something was going to happen immediately. There were aircraft noises in the sky, so people went out and looked around. There was this feeling of anti-climax. Everyone was anticipating the need to go to war, although no one wanted to fight especially. They thought it was about the time that we had to do something about it as a necessity i think there was this feeling that we were dealing with something quite foreign hostile and anti-democratic and therefore it had to be stopped if we didn't do something then the germans would be coming over to attack us we were really in the end just defending our homeland and i think that's that was a genuine feeling (laughs)
2: And that's not the first time I've heard that, uh, that assumption that uh, the minute war was declared, something would happen straight away. That's, that's really well, quite there was interesting. A,
1: a big uh, error uh, alarm uh, in um, uh, over, over northern England. They, they thought there was a raid, yeah.
2: Now, he surely spoke for his generation. At the time, he was working as a clerk at the borough treasurer's department at South Shields Town Hall. First, he joined the Home Guard, and then he tried to join the RAF, only to be thwarted by his myopic eyesight. Mm. That, that'd
1: do for us. That'd too, do for it? us <laughs> too,
2: wouldn't it? Now, this in September, uh, uh, 1942, he was called up, and the army began to um, make him a soldier.
1: Yeah, and this is this is from his basic training. You're going to uh, give a quote from R- Private Ronald Elliot.
2: We had a lance corporal in charge of us who gave us hell. We thought he was God. Well, we had to treat him as God. What he said went and we did whatever he said. It was part of a natural process in the army. The basic training experience is to totally change your civilian attitudes and way of doing things. They had to break any independent spirit that you had. You were trained to obey absolutely any orders that you were given. Without question, that was their main preoccupation. You were being moulded into a fighting machine to kill people.
1: Would you recognise that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that carried right on, right through to the late 70s and 80s when I'm, I was I'm in. I'm
1: not sure basic training will ever change that much.
2: And Lance Corporals were, in fact, God, as I was once godlike. Well, several times Godlike.
1: <laughs> Your military career is a lesson to us all. <sighs>
2: They yes. set me strangely <laughs> enough.
1: <laughs> now he, he really found bayonet training, brutal in Brooklyn, the extreme, but, but he, he thought it was necessary. Uh, and, again, he's a thoughtful time. This is what he said, uh, Ron, Private Ronald Elliot. It was totally bloodthirsty. You had to get yourself hyped up, charge. You had to understand that this was a German. If you didn't kill him, he would kill you. You had to shove your bayonet right through him and then go charging on past him. So it was very bloodthirsty indeed. And did you do bayonet? There wasn't much of that. There
2: wasn't a lot. I think we did it once. But, uh, yeah, it's the image of that cold steel, isn't it? Was that scary? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Now, he's obviously bright, isn't he? But he failed the assessment for a possible commission, as he was not considered practical enough to be an officer. Now, he trained as a signaller with the Leicestershire Regiment at Warwick from October 1942 till February 1943. And during this period, he attended a course at Officers Cadet Training Unit at Hereford. And unfortunately, it didn't go well. And this is Private Did Ronald Elliot. Did you ever Elliott. go to
1: Officers Cadet Training Unit? No. This <laughs> what? Is, Why not, Gary? No, <laughs> um, there's
2: a number of reasons. This is Private Ronald Elliot of uh, the Leicestershire Regiment. I was still a callow youth. Fairly inexperienced. I was showing I was working class. I dare say that my etiquette and table manners weren't perhaps up to scratch, and this was something that was being observed at the time. I did quite well in the actual intelligence tests, as far as I could judge, but I did come a cropper with the practical side. Perhaps they were right in that. I left a pregnant pause there, Peter. You missed your opportunity. (laughs) Uh, uh,
1: uh, It's too obvious, Gary, too obvious. I would never call you a callow youth. (laughs) Um, now, he has appeared as a signaller with a holding battalion. He, he, he trained his signaller with the Royal Warwickshires at Horncastle. Uh, he made an acting lance corporal. way hey, hey. uh, And as acting lance corporal, he had to act as orderly room corporal. Uh, would this be acting unpaid?
2: Yeah, I would imagine so.
1: Then he sa- sails off with a draft aboard the Britannic. Is that one of the Titanics? It's a, isn't it a sister ship? Yeah. Uh, where's he
2: off to? He's off to Algiers, which is...
1: Uh, in Algeria?
2: Yeah, and this is in June 1943. Hmm.
1: And w- this is what he says. Uh, we embarked in, in Nepal on HM, Her Majesty's Troopship Britannia, which is one of the very big troop ships. Bloody was. It was one of the... He didn't say that, I did. It was one of the old cruise liners. In better days... In better days, it was an immense ship. Reading... What language?
2: In better days, it was an immense ship, was it?
1: I think we were on F deck. Thousands and thousands of people on board. We went down, I think, about four or five flights of steps to get down to our level. We were quite certain that if there was any torpedoing being done, the quickest way out would have been through the torpedo hole, rather than try and go upstairs because she was so far below the water line that we'd have drowned in next to no time. You had to put your hammock up as best you could. (laughs) Most people weren't used to hammocks so there was all sorts of little problems and accidents. People falling out of the hammocks or being tipped out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was another little bit of fun and games that people had from time to time. Uh, that one, sorry, that was. <laughs> people tipping you out of the hammock. Great stuff. Uh, once you grow used to them, they were very comfortable. They have a beautiful movement when the ship moved. I think they'd gone out when you. I don't think you went by um, ship. You didn't go by ship to Germany, did you? No,
2: we flew to Germany, but. Um... I have slept in a hammock. He's right. They do have a beautiful movement, except if you try and move, in which case you fall out. <laughs> now, from Algiers, the draft went on a US freight ship to Phillipville and a transit camp. And uh, Private Ronald Elliott goes on to say, Once we got into North Africa, we had to scrub all our equipment white after having blancoed it for months and months prior in England, we had to scrub it white, which was murder. Nobody was dead chuffed with that.
1: That's the army, isn't it? Uh, then they have a very long r- lorry journey. Do you think they complained uh, that to no, a tran- transit... they
2: would have observed all the way.
1: Uh, transit camp at Seuss. Uh, that, that's where Seuss is. Good test for you, this.
2: Uh, Tripolitania.
1: By this time, he's uh, pondering his fate, isn't he? Uh, I, this play, this is an intelligent chap. I don't want you to think of... I know me and Gary are reading this, but don't think it's anybody like us. This is a sensitive, intelligent person, not an idiot.
2: I'm sensitive. No, you're not. <laughs> anyway, what does Private Ronald Elliot say?
1: It's me, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I'm having a lot of trouble reading today. (laughs) I didn't think I was cut out for it. I didn't see I was a natural man of action. One didn't know until later how you would react to actual war situations, whether you'd be able to stand up to the pressure of war. I think everyone was very apprehensive. I don't think there's any real connection between training situations and the real thing. Anything else is just playing at it. And I think people have commented on that, the shock of war as opposed to training. And that's why, of course, they they try and recreate it in training now, don't they, with... uh, As,
2: As close as possible, yes. Banging
1: noises and... Uh, Real bullets, uh, you know, uh, in safe, relatively safe situations. So where are they off to now?
2: Well, the draft then sailed to land at another transit camp at Avola, which is Sicily. Now, the war was getting closer by the minute, and Private Ronald Elliott goes on to say this. We saw Monty. We were just hanging about. We weren't doing anything at the side of this road. This jeep comes bowling past. Typical Monty. He stopped to chat to us. Thin face with very high-pitched voice. Bags of confidence. He asked us who we were and what we were doing. We gave him a good salute. Cheered him up no end. We asked him, How are you going, sir? He said, Oh, well, it was true that they were rather held on the British front things weren't going quite so fast there but that the americans were doing this marvelous pincer movement on the on the western side and that sicily would be taken within two or three weeks then you can all go back to england we said thank you very much sir of course we didn't know that we just he didn't (laughs) he didn't know that we'd just come from england he gave us some fags and off he went again he gave the impression of confidence we were in the sort of Monty-type situation where people were being told what they were doing, which was part and parcel of what he was after.
1: Yeah, well, the, yeah, he, he liked to brief people, didn't he? You know, uh, you know. Anyway, uh, is he at is he, uh, the uh, uh, transit camp long?
2: No, because it's not long, uh, because he's posted as a casualty replacement to the 9th DLI.
1: Fine body of men.
2: And as we've mentioned previously, they'd been badly smashed up at the Battle of uh, Primasol Bridge in Sicily in mid-July, 1943.
1: Yeah, uh, very badly. And we, we remember, this is one of the things about, do you remember doing the 9th DLI, they were the chaps at the Boot de Wallencourt. Uh, they liked to call themselves the and Gurkhas, but nobody else did. I think you I remember you chuckling about that called the gate no yeah, well, I like
2: to call myself the Tottenham Titan I Don't think of you, you as a,
1: and I want you to look it up I think you would have done well in the sixth Durham light infantry
2: okay I'll look that up
1: I'll tell you what it is, black-buttoned bastards.
2: OK, thank you very much. <laughs> so now, Private oh. Ronald Elliot of the 9th DLI says this.
1: It was the 50th Division, and they and they had this very good reputation in the desert in North Africa. They, they had a, a lot of glamour attached to them, so I was quite happy. The unfortunate part about it was that I couldn't go into the signal section. I just went into a platoon as a platoon signaler, which didn't amount to very much because they hardly used them at all. So that was disappointing disappointing. disappointing as I was basically just an ordinary infantryman. They were very experienced, very good soldiers, those that were left. Hmm. They were war-scarred veterans but they were coming to the end of their tether. They were clearly in need of some sort of rest. We newcomers with white knees were treated as though we were from another planet. There's a lot of banter goes on but they accept you. I mean after all they were shorter people and we were building them back up to strength again. That's a two-way thing. It means that you have to go back into action again. There had been a lot of action around there, and there were a lot of dead bodies, some of them in the river. That brought home to the new reinforcements. We were g- going getting nearer and nearer to the actual war, to the front itself. Wow.
2: Now, as they advanced beyond Catania, Elliot was wounded by German mortar fire, and he goes on to say this. It was late afternoon at a place called Akira- Ak- <laughs> Assia Realy on the coast. I was with the platoon and we were just pushing forward. We hadn't seen anybody for days and days. Whenever you're probing to see where the enemy is, someone has got to be at point. We went into this vineyard. What we didn't know was that the Germans had decided to make a stand there and they had the vineyard staked out. As soon as we went in, they mortared it. One person was killed and two or three were wounded, including myself. I was conscious of this numbing pain in my leg and blood spurted out. I didn't know how bad it was, but as everybody else that was wounded was coming out, I thought, well, I better come out as well. I retired as a walking wounded. And at this point, we'll take a short break.
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
2: Now, his wound was relatively trivial, but he was evacuated to the 3rd New Zealand General Hospital near Tripoli. After treatment, he was sent to a transit camp on the beach at Tripoli, and this is... Private Ronald Elliot.
1: On September fifteenth, we were all dragged out. Early morning, we all had our full kit with us. We were paraded at night. I think about two thousand men. We were taken down to the harbour and embarked on three cruisers, utilising transporting this detachment from North Africa to Salerno. We were on the (laughs) Cherrybuddist. There are also the Scylla and the Aurora. <laughs> I see why you gave me that one. The cruisers were all jam-packed. There weren't any proper facilities for troops, so we just slept where, where we could. So he's got better. He's it, 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 just been in a transit camp, but it, it's a minor wound. But now that... So, hang on, that they were supposed to be going home. What's going on? Anyway...
2: Well, once they were already uh, aboard the ship, they were told that they were to be landed at Salerno and would be dispersed to units of the 46th Division, including the 16th DLI. They were to replace the casualties suffered in the recent fighting when the beachhead had appeared in real danger, as indeed was illustrated by the German night attacks on Hospital Hill, which, which we which talked we, about. we
1: did recently in one of the podcasts, didn't we? That was a really exciting... Well, not exciting if you're in it. Bloody awful if you're in it. Uh, so, um, so what does... Uh, so, hang on. They, they thought they were going back to their 50th or 51st division, but they're going to the 46th division. Well, well, uh, what does Ronald Elliott say, Gary?
2: The Salerno bridgehead was at a critical point, and someone panicked. They just grabbed for some convenient reinforcements. It could have been a debacle, a tremendous defeat, if we had to pull out of Salerno. However... We were not aware where we were bound for. It was all against the backdrop of the fact that Monty had promised these divisions of the Desert 8th Army that they would be returning to England, and the people that were on that draft were, by and large, all ex-members of either the Scottish 51st Division or Durham's from the 50th Division. We were unaware of where we were going until the captain, who had sealed orders, read them out and told us we were going to Salerno. That was the beginning of a fair bit of feeling. There wasn't much else to do. People were talking about the situation. A lot of discussions going on and barrack room lawyers. The Scottish lads were very unhappy about going into Salerno. All they knew was that they had been promised by Monty that they would go home and had it not been for being wounded in Sicily that they would be with their battalion to go home. The people in the Salerno Bridgehead were not jock battalions and therefore they didn't see themselves as being involved. This was just talk. At that point in time, the Durhams were just listening to them and talking amongst ourselves, saying it was a dirty trick. Instead of going home, they were going into a whole new ball game, a new area of war with no finite end to it. I don't think I was terribly keen to be going back into action. I suppose that was my main preoccupation, really. Part of it was they still had some sort of respect and affection for Monty, but it wasn't with Monty, it was with an American general. There were any number of different strands of reasons people used either deliberately or unconsciously to argue why they shouldn't be going into Salerno.
1: Now, what makes this worse is by the time they get to Salerno, that danger of those German counterattacks, rather... Well, they'd been held, hadn't they? Uh, and the Germans had started to pull back... Uh, do you think that helped?
2: Well, it's not going to help the overall mood, is it? Now on landing, the draft was left to mill about in a field transport uh, transit area and this is what private Ronald Elliot sees.
1: Never leave soldiers with nothing to do?
2: No, no. Well, well, here we go. We
1: were in this field with nothing else to do. Here you go. Uh, But just talk amongst ourselves about the situation. The jock said that they weren't going to go and fight. They would definitely refuse to go. They had this sort of tribal feeling about it in terms of their argument that they were Scottish soldiers so they should be in a Scottish division. It was a nationalistic thing from their point of view as much as anything else. For the Durhams, it was more like trade union solidarity than anything else. Oh, we'll all stick together, lads, and they can't do anything to us. I was in two minds. I thought perhaps I ought to help them, but on the other hand, I'd really only been in the ninth DLI about three weeks. (laughs) I went to this tall, red-headed Geordie sergeant and said, What should I do? He said, "Why, hey, lad, you should support the jocks and the germs have been treated badly. If we all stick together, we'll be all right. You stick with me. Oh, fair enough. How's this going to end?
2: Yes, I'm thinking about that. Now, for a while, nothing seemed to have changed as they remained in the transit camp. But the military wheels were moving behind the scenes. a
1: bit of a cliché, Gary. I wish you wouldn't write these clichés.
2: And uh, this is, once more, Ronald Elliott. They provided us with compo rations and there was this large area of tomatoes growing quite close by. So we had tomatoes with everything. We stripped this fellow's field of tomatoes. We lived quite well. We cleaned our weapons and talked about the situation. It was quite a pleasant two days. It really didn't crystallise until they brought up all our kit. Until we had everything, which included kit bags and so forth, uh, they are kept in the ship's hold. When you get your kit bags and your big pack, That means you're complete, then you can move. The kit came up one morning. After that point in time, we really didn't have any excuse for not going anywhere. Before that, we couldn't have gone anywhere because we weren't fully accoutred, as it were. But once we got our kit up, we were in a mutiny situation.
1: Oh dear, oh dear. Uh, Now, the first, uh, how how do the authorities deal with it?
2: Well, this isn't unusual. The first step was a sympathetic pep talk. Mm-hmm. But there was a touch of menacing still behind it. Oh, menacing steel. And you're going to tell us uh, what Private, uh, Private Ronald Elliott says. Then we were all
1: paraded. And this chap, I think he was a major, he said, in effect, that there'd been mistakes <laughs> made. They were sorry that it had happened the way that it did and that every effort would be made to try and get people back into their proper formations. Uh, but for the moment, we really didn't have any option but to obey orders and report for duty. We would be posted to appropriate battalions within the 5th Army. That's the American commanded army that the that, 46th that Divis are in. Then the riot act was read out. Ooh. Having that read out to you, you appreciate the enormity of what you're into. You would disobeying lawful orders and could be shot or whatever, it brings a chill to anybody's mind. Oh, blimey!
2: And that is actually read out, isn't it? It's read from a card, the right? Yeah, yeah, It's it Actually, is. read out. Now it was at this point that common sense came to Elliot's rescue. Uh, he had no real case to refuse a posting, as he'd only been in action a few days and he'd been very lightly wounded. And this is what he said. The order was then given that all of those who wished now to obey the lawful orders were to centralise with all of their kit in the centre of this field. I thought to myself, I'm a bloody fool. What have I got that I can say is any sort of an excuse for what I'm doing? I wandered off in, I wandered off in the centre with my kit and lo and behold, there was my friend, the red-headed sergeant, organising the collection together of the kit. I said, I thought you said if we all stayed together, we'd be all right. He says, oh, lad, you have to obey orders at the end of the bloody day. You can't beat the army. Quite a number of people, a good half, collected themselves together and were marched off and ended up with the 16th DLI.
1: Now, that's not all of them, though, because some of the men still refuse to budge. And here we're going to get some other people coming, because that's Elliot gone. I mean, Elliot leaves them there. Uh, and, and during... During this period, the the Colonel of the Sixteenth DLI, we've met him many times before, Colonel Johnny Preston. He drives down to the transit camp to see what he could do. Because, why do you think
2: that? Why do you think that? Well, what? nobody wants to prosecute them. In uh, persu- persuasion was the order of the day.
1: Now, now w- while watching them, uh, well, his driver, his driver was uh, James Cor, uh, Headquarters Company of the Sixteenth DLI, and he was a witness to what Preston said, and he said this. Johnny Preston was making a speech to them about how we needed them, how the 16th Durhams were desperate for them. They were Durhams. They were in a battalion of Durhams. He didn't know what they were worried about because they would just have been going to train for another landing and we'd made a landing for them. (laughs) This was his speech, his sort of style. He finished up and he says, I give you my firm promise as an officer, and Johnny Preston always keeps his word that as soon as the situation here resolves, you will go back to your own battalions. You've got my firm word on that. Well, all but a few then decided to come to us. Just a handful stayed. Right.
2: Now, a few more gave it up at that point, but some remained, as you say, adamant and eventually... The gloves came off.
1: Oh, blimey. We're back to uh, Ronald Elliott. I forgot about this. He explains what happened in his
2: absence. Yeah. Ultimately, they were left with a hardcore who did apparently finish up court-martialed. But those that were left had certainly had opportunity for reconsideration. There were one or two who had gone the whole hog and finished up in prison and had quite a rough time. The army establishment behaved remarkably well under the circumstances because, rightly or wrongly, they were fearful of some military problem. They took the advantage of having whatever troops were supposedly available and intended to use them, and it was a natural, a proper military decision. Anyone who didn't obey orders was in fact in a mutinous state. No army would have accepted that situation, A month or so later, there was a signal came along from headquarters to the effect that anyone who had transferred from the 50th Division or 51st Division could apply to return to their own formations if they wanted to. In the event, I don't think many people did. Some were like me and thought that though it would be very nice to go back, one was going back to the second front, which was going to be no pushover. That was likely to be a very dangerous and deadly battle. On the whole, we felt that we were probably rather better off in Italy than on the second front. So we stayed where we were.
1: Is it all about you then, uh, Ronald? (laughs) Ronald Gary. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, what happens to Ronald Elliott when he gets to
2: 16th? Uh, well, he's posted to the signals section, HQ Company, but he's then attached to D Company.
1: Yeah, well, and we'll be hearing lots from him in the coming months as we grind through this book. Now, I've used the word "grind" there.
2: <laughs> now, <laughs> yes, some people often think of you and Grinder in the same sentence, no, Gary. Now, in the uh, end, some one nine two, a hundred ninety two, recalcitrance you were trying to trick me out there, weren't you, were shipped off to Algeria, where they were all charged with mutiny, a number unprecedented in British military history. Yeah, this
1: is a serious affair. I mean, Elliot's got out of it, but 192 are charged with mutiny. Uh, and how many are found innocent?
2: Uh, well, they're all found guilty, and three sergeants were sentenced to death, but that was subsequently commuted to forced labour and then suspended.
1: Now, how, uh, how do you think the Durham's reacted? Uh, sympathetically?
2: Well, I'm, I'm not sure they did, but we're going to finish with a view of Private Tom Lister of the uh, motor transport section of the HQ company. <sighs>
1: I don't think many of us had much sympathy for them because we accepted that they'd had a pretty hard time. A lot of them had been wounded and they were cheesed off. But you're in the army and you do what you're told or suffer the consequences. That's the point. It seemed rather stupid. And that's uh, the, the natural tolerance and sympathy that you'd expect to find in the army, I think.
2: Well, it is quite daft if you think about it. It's, it's an odd thing to make a stand about.
1: Well, it certainly is for Elliot, who, uh, I mean, I, I like the way Elliot realises, I haven't got a bloody leg to stand on. No. I've been with them for a few, couple of days. I've been incredibly lightly wounded. I have no leg to stand with. And then it's interesting. He then thinks, do I want to go back for D-Day? And 50th Div had a rough old time for D-Day. They were but broke. even
2: the Scots, I'm not sure that there was real justification for, for what they were doing.
1: No. Uh, but I don't think. I mean, it is more a strike than a, you know. There's no violence. There's no. There's no.
2: There's but you, ju- you know, you're you're in a theatre of war. It's a legitimate order, and it's not being obeyed. Uh, the army's got to be seen to be doing something.
1: Yeah. Do, do you think the army behaved well? Uh, I think they. I think be- they
2: behaved remarkably well
1: after the event. I think before the event, they were insensitive. I think. Uh,
2: yeah, up to that point, but. But the 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 attempts to persuade, rather you know, rather than big stick, I think was the right approach. I'm not sure Johnny Preston could make that promise actually as a colonel. But it, but, it, 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 it did,
1: yeah, it, it, it did come true. Yeah. I mean they were offered it. Yeah. So an interesting. It's a it's a, it, it's a. I mean, there's been books written about Salerno, Salerno mutiny, but uh, and it's an interesting topic. But it isn't terrible. It's it's more interesting than. Uh, you know, it's have not. It's not a shame on the sixty. No, <laughs> I haven't. it's. It's. I've forgotten the name. It's a very famous historian's written the uh, the book about it. It's just gone. Have you forgotten out. their name? I have forgotten their name, but they're very famous and very good.
2: Excellent. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah.
1: If you'd like to support blah,
2: blah. us, you
1: can now buy us a coffee.
2: Blah, blah, blah. Visit
1: www. www.buymeacoffee.com
2: pgmh or visit blah, 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 blah and we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening.